morning, everyone. My name is Dalia, and I'm doing the second Bible reading today. Um, and it's taken from the Psalm 11. And it's on the My Pew Bible on page 572, or you can follow on the screen. Psalm 11, beginning from verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in, the heart, in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examined the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Thanks, Dahlia. Good morning. My name's Ollie, if I haven't met you. And uh, we'll be working through that psalm today. So it'd be great if you could keep your Bible open. We will work through it. Uh, if you're a visitor and you're not aware, we've got an outline in our, our newsletter. You might find that useful and helpful as we make our way through as well. But as we begin, I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Gracious hiking of heaven, we praise your name for you've given us your word. While the grass withers and the flowers fall, your word endures forever. May you work through it now to grow us in our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How you understand things depends a lot on your perspective. I was chatting to a friend recently who told me about an interaction he had with his neighbour the night before near their places. Uh, the local school had had a spring festival and as part of that spring festival, the local school had had a firework display. Now, fireworks are typically a wonderful thing, lighting up the sky with all the different colours of the rainbow, deep blues and vibrant pinks, stunning greens and, and fluorescent oranges. They're a beautiful thing to see. The only problem was this neighbour didn't realise that there was a school carnival on and didn't realise that there were fireworks happening. So he was sitting on his couch just enjoying his night when all of a sudden he heard bang! Bang, 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 bang. Now this, of course, startled him. And not knowing that there were fireworks on, he came to another conclusion. So he picked up his phone and he dialed triple zero. When the operator picked up and, and asked him, what's your emergency? He said, come quick, there's a mass shooting happening. In fact, he was so convincing that the operator asked him, can you see the bodies? See, how you understand things depends a lot on your perspective. And we can see that in plenty of other things. When I look in the mirror, I see a muscular, handsome, charming man looking back. But the other day I was talking to Levi, my son, and do you know what he said? He pointed to this sticker and he said, this looks like you, Daddy. Not the same, but similar. How you understand things depends a lot on your perspective. Or what about at work, when someone makes a mistake, there's all sorts of different perspectives. The perspective of the one who's done the mistake, done something wrong, opening, wishing the ground would open up and swallow them. There's the perspective of the boss, who's unhappy something's been done wrong, it means worse profits or longer deadlines. 
and there's the perspective of those watching on, just glad that it's not them who's done the wrong thing. See, how you understand things depends a lot on your perspective. And today, as we end one year and look ahead to another year, that thought should be front and centre in our mind because how we understand the world will be shaped by our perspective of things. Particularly when we see all the terrible things that are happening in the world around us. Just this week, I read of a few different stories. I read of the violence in Myanmar with more than 18 million people in urgent need of humanitarian aid and in fact it's the children who are bearing the brunt of the worst of it. I also read of 160 Christians killed in a Christmas uh, massacre in central Nigeria. Muslim terrorists made an attack on 18 different villages, gunning people down and burning villages to the ground. Closer to home, I read of a murder on Christmas Day in Western Australia. We can look around and see, and the world can seem like a terrible place with humans doing horrendous things to each other. So we might wonder then, how do I live in a world like that? Well, today I want us to consider two different perspectives, the world's perspective and God's perspective. And as we do, we'll see that if we live by the world's perspective, then we'll be crushed by all that we see around us and all that happens to us. But if we see things from God's perspective, then it allows us to withstand it, to survive, to persevere. And so that's what we'll see today. We start with the world's perspective and David, the author of our psalm, he tells us, don't see what the world sees. He begins by paraphrasing a conversation with an advisor who tells him to flee. The advisor tells him that the righteous are defeated and there's nothing you can do, David. Have a look at verses one to three. Have a look. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, these advisors look around and they see that the wicked are stalking David like a hunter stalking the prey. He likens David to a bird and he says, David, you should flee to the mountains, hide in the mountains, in the nooks and the crannies there. Hide away because the wicked are ready to pounce. They're pulling their bows, ready to shoot you out of the sky and waiting to destroy anyone else who is upright in heart. In fact, these uh, advisors look around and they they realize how bad the world is and that leads them to say what they say in verse three. Have a look again. The foundations are being destroyed. That is the foundation of the world order of goodness over evil, of reason over chaos, of obedience to God's good plan over the destruction that comes from disobedience. They look at the world around them and they come to a despondent conclusion. The very fabric of the world of moral and political order is being destroyed. I wonder, have you ever felt like that? When you see the wars raging across the globe in Ukraine, in the Middle East, in Myanmar, in Myanmar do you look at that and feel like the very fabric of the world, of the moral and political order, is being destroyed? When you hear in Australia that a woman was killed every five days, more than 50 this year, 
and about 60 of those were committed, those murders were committed by current or former partners. When you look at that, do you feel like the very fabric of the world of moral and political order is being destroyed? When you look at our state and see the babies who are born alive, who survive abortions, are denied medical care and are left to die on the operating table? Do you look at that and feel like the very fabric of our world, of the moral and political order, is being destroyed? When you see the ways laws are passed that make it illegal for us as Christians to pray for and counsel those who are struggling with their sexuality and gender identity and the fact we could be sent to jail for doing it, do you look at that and feel like the very fabric of the world of moral and political order is being destroyed? When you see what's, called, what's, good, what's good called evil and what's evil celebrated, do you look at that and feel like the very fabric of the world of moral and political order is being destroyed? And if you do, does that fill you with a sense of resignation? Do you feel hopeless? Hopeless for the future of our country? Hopeless for the future of our children? Hopeless for the future of our church? Hopeless for your future? Well, that is what these advisors are feeling. A sense of hopelessness for the future. And that's why they ask that rhetorical question at the end of verse 3. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Well, the implied answer is nothing. Well, when we feel like that, we are seeing what the world sees. Not that it's wrong to feel disturbed and disgusted by that, angered and outraged by that. Of course we should. Those are terrible things. It's good and right to feel that. But rather, that sense of hopelessness that sense that nothing can be done about it, that sense that all we can do is throw up our hands and flee, that is seeing what the world sees. That is seeing things from the world's perspective. And David says, don't do it. Don't give up hope. Don't think there is no solution. Because of course, if we see things from the world's perspective, then of course we're going to be disheartened. We'll see the evil trampling the weak and seeming to get away with it. We'll see the powerful crushing the helpless, the lofty humiliating the lowly. And if that's what we see, then of course we're going to lose heart and lose hope. But Psalm 11 exhorts us, don't see what the world sees. What should we see instead? Well, rather than seeing things from the world's perspective, we should see things from God's perspective. See, one of the most beautiful things about the Psalms, and Psalm 11 in particular, is how it lifts our vision beyond the wreck of the world, and sets our eyes on the glory of God. I really love how they do that. They give us that new perspective. They help us see things as they really are and as they really will be. See, in times when justice, justice and righteousness are no longer reigning supreme in society, what can the righteous do? See what God sees. And God sees two things. Firstly, when God looks out on his world, God knows that he would destroy the wicked. Verse 4 tells us that God's sitting up there in his holy temple on his heavenly throne and he's looking out across the world and he sees everything and everyone. Have a look at verse 4. The Lord in his holy temple 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. I wonder, have you ever played the computer game The Sims? Uh, this is a, an example of it. Here, The Sims in it. Uh, you get to look down on a family as they do everything that they do, as they wash the dishes, as they sit on the couch and watch TV, as they talk with each other, as they sleep in bed. Sounds like a riveting game, doesn't it? But that's what you do. You're up above and you look down and see everything, absolutely everything. Nothing is hidden from you. And in a little sense, that is what God is like. God is sitting up there looking down and God sees everything. And as he does, his penetrating gaze examines us. Now the word used there in verse 4 is the Hebrew word bachan which is often used about testing metals in fire. It's a vigorous testing process because you want, you want to know that your sword will withstand the battle, that your plowshare will survive the harvest. And so you examine the metal carefully, looking closely at every little bump and wrinkle, every bend and strain. And that is what God does to every single person on earth. Have you ever thought about that? That is what God is doing to each of us. See, we might be able to fool others. We might be able to pull the wool over others' eyes. We might be able to put on a facade of righteousness that sucks in everyone else, but we can't fool God. God looks on each of us. He bachans us. He examines us. And do you see what he does to those found wanting, to the wicked? Look at verses five and six. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. These are confronting verses. God looks on the wicked and he hates them. And the NIV there has hates with a passion, but the literal Hebrew is his soul hates. This is a deep disgust, a loathing to his very core. I wonder, what do you hate the most? As many of you might know, for me, it's cheese. I hate cheese. Eating it makes me throw up. It makes my stomach churn just to smell it. Being anywhere near it makes me shudder in revulsion. Is there anything you hate? What is it that makes your skin crawl? What is it that makes your stomach churn? What makes your blood boil and your fists clench? Well, whatever it is, that is how God feels about the wicked. That, but even stronger. He despises them with everything he is. Do you find that surprising? That God could hate to his very soul? It's language we're not familiar with as Christians. We're used to passages like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. We're used to that idea that God loves. Yet this is what the psalmist says, that God hates the wicked. And that hatred leads him to destroy them. There it says he'll rain fiery coals and burning sulfur on them. That's, that language there is reminiscent of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the language it uses there. Do you remember that story from Genesis 19? Abraham visits his, his nephew Lot. 
in a city called Sodom. And while he's there, two angels come to visit them. The angels come and stay with Abraham and Lot. And the townspeople then gather outside the door and demand that Lot sends out these visitors, the angels, so that the townspeople can sexually assault them. It's a, it's a revolting story, a terrible story. But what seems even worse is that this doesn't seem like a one-off. seems like this is quite a common occurrence here in these towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God looks on that, God is filled with disgust and outrage. And so he pours out his righteous judgment on them. After allowing Abraham and Lot to flee, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. He wipes them off the map with sulfur from heaven in judgment of their wickedness. And that's what David's alluding to here. God will do the same thing to those who are wicked, even today. Not in literal sulfur from heaven, but in judgment on judgment day. See, one day the wicked will stand before the throne of God, before their maker, before the one who can snuff them out with just a click of his fingers. And they will have to give accounts for every single thing they've done. And that is a fate far more terrifying than being wiped out by just physical fire. But isn't that actually comforting to know? When we see the foundations of the world being destroyed by the wicked, by those pushing a crooked worldview and then banning us from speaking against it, by those exploiting others for their own personal gain, by those devouring the hapless and the helpless, by those killing defenseless babies. When we see that, we can take heart that God sees that too. <coughs> Excuse me. And his soul is filled with righteous hatred. And God will do something about it. God will bring judgment. And that is God's perspective. And when we see things from God's perspective, we realize that is what he'll do. And so we don't need to flee we don't need to throw our hands up in despair. We don't need to give up all hope in the face of the wickedness of the world because we know that God will destroy the wicked. That's the first thing we see when we see the world from God's perspective. The second thing we see is that God will uphold the righteous. Have a look at verse seven. <clears throat> For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. See, while God hates the wicked, he loves the just and the righteous, and will allow the righteous and the just to enter into his presence, which is an amazing thing. We know that kings and leaders are notoriously difficult to enter into their presence. In fact, you know, you know the US president, he lives in the White House, do you know the security they have at the White House, the stuff they have preventing you from going and seeing the president's face? Well, the outside uh, fences are 11 feet tall. That's taller than a basketball ring. They're topped with infrared cameras that can see the slightest change in temperature and alert people, alert the security. The fence is topped with barbed wires. The house has bulletproof windows. And some rooms can even withstand a nuclear explosion on top of that, the place is swarming with secret service agents and even tourists who want to visit have to give 21 days notice so that a background check can be done on them. There is no way that anyone is getting to see the President of the United States. That is how unapproachable he is. That's how much effort goes into making him unapproachable. 
and it was no different in biblical times, most people were not allowed to see the king. They weren't allowed anywhere near the king. Yet in Hebrew, they had a saying, to see the king's face. It meant you had access to the king. You could go into the king's presence. And here, the righteous will see God's face. The just will be able to enter into the presence of the king. Not just the king of a nation, but the king of the universe. It is a tremendous privilege. And so that's seeing things from God's perspective. It's realizing that God will destroy the wicked and God will uphold the righteous. The fearful truth, though, is this. We are not the righteous. We are the wicked. We might think of ourselves as righteous because we tend to think of sin and wickedness as the overt things, murder and theft and adultery. And it's true, those are wicked things. But in God's eyes, so are the more subtle things, the things that we're perhaps a bit more comfortable with. I cannot recommend this book to you, a really helpful book, very formative for my thinking, Respectable Sins. In it, he doesn't talk about the things that we commonly think of as sins. Ah, this is it here, like stealing or, or lying. He doesn't talk about that. But instead, he talks about the more subtle sins that we commit without really thinking. Things like discontentment and unthankfulness, impatience and irritability, judgmentalism and pride. I wonder, do those sound like sins to you? Maybe we think they're a bit unpleasant, but not sins. But yet God says they are sin. And all sin, no matter how subtle it might seem to us, is malignant. It wages war against our souls because it is a rejection of our heavenly sovereign. It is spiritual treason. And God looks on us. God examines us. God behinds us. And when he does... He sees each of those acts of spiritual treason overt and subtle, and he'll judge them. See, that is the reality. While we might wish to be in the righteous category, we're not. We're actually in the wicked. So what's the solution then? It's Jesus. God, in his kindness, knows that we are wicked that we are deserving of judgment. And yet, as John 3.16 says, he still loves us so much that he sent his son down into the world to live the perfect and righteous life that we do not and to then die and bear God's judgment poured out on him, the judgment we deserve in order to save us, the wicked. And so now, because of him, we can enter into God's presence. We can enter into the presence of the king. We can see his face. See, if left to our own devices we would be sitting under God's judgment with no hope of anything other than righteous judgment coming down full force. But now, as we saw in Romans 5, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. That is the hope of the gospel. And so, that's what we see when we see what the world sees. when we see what God sees. Do you see the contrast between those two? When we see how the world sees, we'll lose hope. But when we see how God sees, we see the wonder of the gospel. And don't you love how Psalm 11, it just recalibrates our vision. It sets our eyes away from the wreck of the world onto the glory of God. 
And in fact, as we start the new year, 2024, Psalm 11 is a little bit like an eye test. You know, when you go to the optometrist and they get you to look through the machine and they tell you, get you to say what letters and numbers are on the wall and then they tell you whether you need glasses or if you have glasses, how to readjust them again so your eyes work properly. In a sense, that's a little bit like what Psalm 11 does. It's our start of year recalibration. It gets our eyes working properly again. I recently heard the story of a man who spent some time in Romania in, early, in the early 2000s, and as he was driving along in a car with a local, he looked around and he was just struck by the ugliness of it all. He said the sidewalks were cracked and muddy and the streets were filled with potholes. Paint was peeling off the grey buildings and many of the houses had, had roofs and walls that looked like they could cave in at any moment. He thought to himself, this is just so ugly. But as he was thinking this, he heard soft singing. The local lady who was with him was singing, How great thou art, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand has made, she began, before then going on to sing of the beauty of God's creation. See, while he was looking around and seeing all the ugliness, she was praising God for the beauty of his creation. How were they so different? Well, it comes down to perspective. He was focused on the external ugliness while she saw the beauty of God's hand at work. And so as the local lady continued to sing her song of praise, this guy looked around again and this time he was aware of the trees with their, their autumn leaves and the leaves changing colour and then those leaves falling and the coloured mosaic they made on the ground. He saw animals running around. He saw the light of the sun bright in the sky and he realised while, he'd been, he'd, while previously he'd been observing the kind of ugly remains of a once beautiful city, she was looking at the beautiful patches of God's handiwork springing up among those remains. See, it's all about perspective. And in the same way, we often miss the beauty of God's goodness because of our perspective. See, the world is a little bit like that city, ugly and decrepit. When we look at the world, we can't help but see the wickedness, economic exploitation, terrorism, moral upheaval. We see that crooks are elevated and perversions are celebrated. The world can seem so ugly. But underneath that ugly exterior, there's an underlying beauty. What is that beauty? It's the beauty of God at work. The beauty that says that evil will not triumph, that the wicked will not go unpunished forever. And God wants us to look past that ugly exterior of the world to see the beauty of his hand at work. And Psalm 11 helps us to do that. It recalibrates our eyes. It helps us to see the world with a new perspective. And imagine if this coming year, 2024, when we look around, we don't see what the world says, but instead... See what God sees. When we see wars raging and people starving, when we see injustices abound and atrocities committed, when we see evil seeming to triumph and the wicked seeming to be in control, then we'll still be saddened, of course, because that's a sad thing. But we will not be crushed. We won't be without hope. We won't be filled and consumed with pessimism. Because we know of the underlying beauty of the world, 
the beauty of God at work, the beauty that says that evil will not triumph, that the wicked will not go unpunished forever. It's the same when we don't just see the wickedness and the evil out there, but when we experience it ourselves, when we are the victim of evil, when people wrong us, when we suffer unjustly, when we're mistreated and slandered, then we'll still be saddened, of course, because it's a terrible thing to experience. But we won't throw our hands up in resignation. We won't be filled with hopelessness about things. We won't be crushed by the weight of gloomness and glumness. Because we know the underlying beauty of the world, the beauty of God at work, the beauty that says that the evil will not triumph and the wicked will not go unpunished forever. And that allows us then to live for God with faith and not fear, with gratitude and not grumbling, with contentment, not complaining. See, if we have our eyes recalibrated by Psalm 11, if we see the world how God sees it, then just see what a difference this will make for the year ahead. At the start, we said how you understand things depends a lot on your perspective. My prayer for you today is that this year, you would see things from God's perspective, not from the world's. In fact, I'm going to pray that now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you will not let the uh, wicked go on forever, that you will hold wickedness and evil to account. There will be judgment and, and, and account giving. And we thank you for that. Thank you that when we are the victim of wickedness and evil, we can take heart in that. And would you comfort us, we ask? We do confess, it's, we find it difficult to look past that ugly exterior. Can be so challenging. Would you help us? Would you use Psalms like Psalm 11 to recalibrate our eyes so that this year ahead we might see past that to the beauty of you at work, your hand at work, your righteousness there? And would that give us great hope for the year? And may we live this year in light of that, rejoicing that you are king and you will bring justice one day. We do confess our own wickedness while we want to be the righteous who see your face. We know that that's not what we're always like. You know, there's plenty of things we've done that are sin. Thank you then for Jesus who came and washed all of that away, who took the judgment, the judgment and punishment we deserve for our sake. So we thank you for him. May you help us to cling to him and find our salvation in him. And pray in his name. Amen.